stay hungry, stay foolish. We're just finished recording a multiple part episode with Tim Clark, the author of the four stages of psychological safety. You can win a copy by signing up to the innovationshow.io newsletter. I just want to thank our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's get into part one of the four stages of psychological safety with Tim Clark. Do you believe that all men and women are created equal? And do you accept others and welcome them into your society simply because they possess flesh and blood, even if their values differ from your own? Without bias or discrimination, do you encourage others to learn and grow? And do you support them in that practice, even when they lack confidence or make mistakes? Do you grant others maximum autonomy to contribute in their own way as they demonstrate their ability to deliver results? Do you consistently invite others to challenge the status quo in order to make things better? Or are you personally prepared to be wrong based on the humility and learning mindset you have developed? Very important last one for our audience. In large measure, the way you answer these questions will define the way you value human beings and your relationships with them. It will define the way you draw people out or shut them out, create confidence or induce fear, encourage or discourage. It will determine how you lead and influence others and yourself. We welcome the man who poses those questions the author of the four stages of psychological safety, defining the path to inclusion and innovation. Timothy Clark, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Ian. I'm happy to be here. I'm delighted to have you. We've been planning this for such a long time and I have a copy of the book there behind me on the new library. As I said to you, Tim has been very patient. He's granted me psychological safety as I was running a little bit late because I had to put those shelves together. <laughs> I had to put the new bookshelves together. And I, I actually have a fourth one. It's over there in the corner. It's in bits. So I scrambled to get on time today. And I'd miscalculated Tim, as I said, how long it would take to get the books on the shelves. That's what actually uh, took me so long. So let's get into it without further ado. And we're going to do a two part series today, I'm going to break the show into two parts for those people who can't listen through an entire hour and a half or hour and 45 minutes. So I'll just throw that to our audience. Now there'll be two parts to this episode. Tim, I thought we'd start with something that happened several years ago, where you said your wife Tracy and you returned to the United States from England, as you neared the completion of a PhD in social sciences in Oxford University. As you said, the ramen budget was gone. And you would have to work a job for a year, finish your dissertation, teach at a university and live happily ever after that was the plan. But it was far from what materialized. I'd love you to share this as a source of your origin story of where you came into this term, psychological safety and how you experienced it firsthand. It's a strange origin story. Um, we did come back from England and I found a job in of all places in a, in a steel mill. And so I went to work in a steel mill and, uh, after a while I thought, well, I'll, I'll work here for, as I said, a year or so finish my dissertation and then I'll go get my teaching job and move on with life. But as it turned out, the, the chief executive officer asked me to be the plant manager to manage the the entire plant. And so Tracy and I, we we pondered that. It was not anything that was part of our career path or plan, but we felt that we should take that opportunity. And so we did. And I ended up being the plant manager for five years. And what that did, Aiden, is when you're a plant manager in heavy manufacturing, you're not only responsible for performance in terms of throughput and yield and all of those things that we care about in manufacturing, but you're responsible for the safety of all the employees. That's your job. That's part of your stewardship. You're responsible for the safety of every single person that comes within the gates of that plant. 
And so you're highly sensitized to safety. Safety becomes a religion. You preach it every day. We do safety training. We do safety awareness, uh, what we call uh, safety touch points. We review uh, safe job procedures. It's all about safety. But what I realized, what I learned is that uh, the most important part of safety is psychological safety. So, so let, me, let me take you back in history a little bit, okay? In 1788, the British Parliament passed a law, and it's called the Chimney Sweepers Act. Now, this is the, this is the first industrial revolution. So this is the time of mechanization and mass production and steam engines and textiles. Remember all that? We learned that in school. Well, at that time, these chimney sweeps, these, these, these people that would clean out the chimneys in London and in the other industrial uh, centers of Britain, in some cases, they were conscripting boys as young as four years old to help them in very dangerous circumstances and for long hours. So imagine that. So finally, British Parliament, they called time out and they said, hang on, you can't do that. That's not right. And so they passed this law called the Chimney Sweepers Act. This is 1788. Out of that law came this concept that we called the duty of care. And the duty of care means that we have a responsibility to look after each other in the workplace. We have a stewardship to keep each other safe. Well, how how have we been doing that? Well, it's we've been pretty good at removing obstacles and hazards from the workplace in four categories, physical, chemical, biological, and ergonomic. These are the standard four hazard categories. And we've been using those for more than 200 years. We've, done, we've made a lot of progress, but we've been missing the most important hazard category, psychological. Psychological safety should be the centerpiece of any understanding or conception of safety. Once you put that in to the framework, now you have an integrated, holistic understanding of safety. So when I came into the plant, Aiden, it was just physical safety. That's the way that we thought about safety. That's all there was. But what I realized, and I started uh, um, to put these, 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 these pieces together, is that psychological safety is the central category of safety, and it affects all the others. And you need to have a holistic understanding. And I realized that I was responsible for their psychological safety, not just their physical safety. Well, that was like revolutionary, because that's not the way that that I was socialized. That's not the way that managers are brought up. And uh, I also came to learn that if it's not there, it can have devastating consequences to the individual in terms of, of self-efficacy and confidence and upward mobility and opportunity and engagement. It goes on and on and on. So th just a little, uh, that's a little bit about my origin story. I had studied uh, culture at Oxford, and so I was very anxious to use this as an opportunity to be a participant observer in the bowels of this industrial beast, to learn all that I, all that I could, and and also to be a change agent. So that's how <laughs> I know that's an unusual story, but that's my story. It goes further than that. The stuff you left out there, your sporting career, your academic scholarship because of uh, being athletic, all those things had a major impact on how you think. I, I felt that from reading your story. And the one thing this show teaches me, Tim, is the polymath is in a very good place in this world. Having a a bird's eye view of many different fields is so valuable and unfortunately the education system teaches us to go into our swim lanes and be very linear in our thinking but the person who can see a bigger picture is actually better manager better leader uh, better thinker all these benefits to that and, and you certainly had that from your experience as well but let's get back to the story because the story 
unearthed many of the challenges that are in organizations. Many of our change, la change agents who listen to this show experience exactly what you talk about in the book. One of those things was, again, talking about you taking over as manager of this steel plant, was that the managers and the, the people working in there had been used to author authoritarian rule. And oftentimes when I bring this up, I work with some organizations and they kind of go, yeah, but you kind of need some people to be there. You need them to be worker ants in the organization. But you, you said something here that was a killer line. You said, experience had thought these managers that it was emotionally, politically, socially, and economically expensive to say what they really thought. So they just smiled and nodded politely. And we know that is a death, that is a shot across the bow of an organization to go warning, there's threats in the horizon for you. I'd love you to take us through that because your experience of meeting these people and doing these town hall meetings and introducing yourself showed that there was no psychological safety, there was group think, there was a fear of speaking up, all the things that lead to disruption in an organization. When I first came in, Aiden, the the superintendents that reported to me on average, they were 20 years older than I was. And they had been deeply socialized in a culture of fear and intimidation, authoritarian rule. And so it was, it was my job to recast the culture. But think about what happens if, if you're in that kind of environment, you are deprived of the feedback and the input that you need because they're not going to share it. And so what happens over time is if you lead this way, you become willfully blind because you're shutting people down. They withdraw, they recoil, they retreat. And yet they, they are the ones that have the local knowledge. They are the ones that can tell you what's happening on the shop floor. They are the ones that can help you solve problems and get better. And yet you're deprived of that, that input. And so one of the conclusions that I came to, and, and I think this is a universal truth, if there's pervasive fear on a team or in an organization, that is the first sign of weak leadership. Because what that says is that the manager or leader is using fear as a proxy for leadership. They've actually abdicated the leadership role and they're using fear as a substitute. That's a cop-out. They're not leading anymore. Fear is a very poor substitute for leadership, but many people do it. So that's, that's a very strong thesis that I have um, based on not only my own experience, but work with organizations around the world. If there's pervasive fear, it's absolutely symptomatic of a leader that's not doing the job. I think you're so right. I was thinking about this uh, only this morning. I was at my, my son's sports day this morning, and uh, luckily the weather held up, Tim. We're in Ireland after all. It's, it started lashing rain afterwards, and it didn't look like there was a cloud in the sky, and then the rain poured down literally as the sports day finished. But I was talking to one of the other parents because my son, when he was younger, one of the teachers had ruled by fear and it had a dramatic effect on my son because he didn't really want to try anything new. He didn't want to try sports. He's a brilliant sports person, but he didn't want to try sports. And I found out actually it was the fear of making a mistake. And this was a child. And this actually happened so much so that one day I was doing, he was drawing and I was sitting beside him and he asked me, and this is when he was only like first, it was his first grade. So it was first experience in school. And he said, dad, will you color in? And I was like, kind of going, what? <laughs> I'm here to watch you color in. And he said, I'm afraid about going out the side the lines. I was like, going, oh my God. And then I was talking to one of the parents today and she said that same teacher did the same thing to her son and he was he wouldn't read because he was fearful of making mistakes, which was just heartbreaking. But then I thought about it made me think because of reading your book at the same time, I was like, well, that's what 
many, many plants and CEOs who run organizations have been trained like, and then they've been ruled for they've been taught how to deal in a steady state environment, but also a more industrial age. And they've brought this through. And, and that's what I really felt that you would experience this. And as, as you said, you had to defang the organization from this authoritarian rule. And I loved your language there. But I wanted to share a, a quote from the book that really will speak to so many people. You say, commercial organizations survive by maintaining competitive advantage, which ultimately means incubating innovation. If you watch closely, you will notice that innovation is almost always a collaborative process, and almost never a light bulb moment of a lone genius. As the historian Robert Conquest once said, what is easy to understand may not have been easy to think of. Innovation is never easy to think of, it requires creative abrasion, I love that term and constructive dissent processes that rely on high intellectual friction, and low social friction. I love that term. And I'd love you to expand on that thought. Well, organizations, Aiden, they only do two things. This is the way that I conceive of what we do in organizations. And it doesn't matter if you're in a school, if you work in healthcare, if you work in government, if you work in a commercial organization, if you work in a nonprofit, if you work in a voluntary association, it doesn't matter. You do two things. Number one is execution. And number two is innovation. Execution is creating and delivering value today. That's what execution is. Based on the current configuration of the of that organization and the current resources and the mission and the vision and the strategy and the capability and the technology, that, that's execution. Creating and delivering value today. Innovation is figuring out how we're gonna create and deliver value tomorrow. That's all we do. Value today, value tomorrow. Let's talk about value tomorrow. Value tomorrow means innovating. Because we don't know how things are going to change. We just know they will. And we know we're going to have to adjust and adapt and innovate. So if that's true, then we need to either we disrupt ourselves, or we will be disrupted. Take your choice. Th those are your only two options. You can learn how to disrupt yourself based on your adaptive capacity as an organization, or you can move along in a state of equilibrium and wait to be disrupted. Innovation by its very nature is disruptive of the status quo. It undermines the status quo. So that means we need to do that to ourselves. <laughs> and, and what does that translate into? It translates into creative abrasion. It translates into constructive dissent. It translates into uh, testing ideas, having hard-hitting dialogue and debate. It, it translates into a very high tolerance for candor. In short, it translates into intellectual friction. That is your raw material for innovation. You can't innovate if you don't have that. It's not possible. Innovation requires that. But as I said, when the intellectual friction goes high, the social friction tends to go up at the same time, and therein lies the problem. So psychological safety represents uh, the environment in which uh, intellectual friction can go to very high levels, but we keep the social friction down at the same time. Why? Because we're maintaining terms of engagement based on respect, the respect and the permission that we give each other. If we keep doing that, if we maintain those conditions, then we are able to create an incubator of innovation based on the raw material of intellectual friction, which you need. And if you can't create that, then just plan on being disrupted from the outside, because that's what's going to happen eventually. Such an important aspect. And many CEOs and leaders listen to this show. And I was so keen to have you on because 
you understand the link between psychological safety and innovation. They're, without psychological safety, there's no innovation. And I've worked in those companies. And there's many of the things I was just nodding along as I was reading your book, I've experienced those things, including in sport, as we'll get into in a little while. But there's one thing I just wanted to clear up because my understanding and many people who listen to the show and many people who are interested in these fields of work will have understood that the term psychological safety was coined by the great Amy Edmondson, former guest on the show. And you've tracked it right back. And initially in the book, you said 1990, where it was William Kahn. But then you tracked it even further back into a book that's out of print. And I let you tell the story because the origin of that is quite important because you see it at the turn of where the knowledge economy started to come out and the industrial economy started to like this transition, this cross fade between those two different things. But also, I'd love to hear your version of that term yourself, what you feel it is before we go into the four stages that you talk about. So the origin story for the term psychological safety is quite interesting. If you do a comprehensive word search, and you go all the way back, the very first references to psychological safety are in old, greasy, industrial safety manuals. <laughs> and I found about four references that go back to the 1940s. What are you doing with greasy old manuals from the 1940s, man? <laughs> and you can find, you can, you can actually find uh, digital copies of these manuals. It's, it's amazing from the 1940s. There are about three or four, uh, instances where they use this term. They don't define it. They just put the two words together with the assumption that there's, there's a psychological side of safety in addition to a physical side. Well, so then we fast forward to 1965 and we have Warren Bennis and Edgar Schein at MIT. And they write a book called Personal and Organizational Change Through Group Methods. This is a book that's published in 1965. And on page 44, there is a subheading that says psychological safety. And they spend just a paragraph talking about it. And they do give a, a, a pretty good definition. It's not a complete definition, but this is what they say. In order for unfreezing to lead to an increased desire to learn rather than to a heightened anxiety where the individual is immobilized or impervious to new inputs, an environment must be created with maximum psychological safety. This is a difficult and paradoxical task for with one hand, the laboratory culture is trying to unfreeze and increase tensions. And with the other hand, it is providing an atmosphere where no one can take chances without fear and with sufficient protection. So they're just pointing out how difficult this is because we need to manage risk, but we also need to give people the opportunity to be innovative and to uh, be creative in their ideas and their input. So that's a very short treatment, but that's really the genesis and that's where the, the, the concept is introduced to the academic research literature. And it has a slow growth after that. But uh, let me go to my definition. There are some rather complicated clinical academic definitions. I, I don't think they're very helpful. Here's my definition. Psychological safety is a culture of rewarded vulnerability. This is this is the critical mechanism, because this is what we see. When, when people engage in acts of vulnerability, those acts of vulnerability in a social unit, in a social situation, they will be either rewarded or punished. When you create a culture where, the, where my acts of vulnerability and your acts of vulnerability are consistently rewarded, psychological safety will climb. It will go to higher and higher levels. Why? Because your vulnerable behavior is being rewarded. 
that is the central mechanism for cultural transformation. You can do everything else that you want to do, but if you don't do that, it doesn't matter. Everything else is scaffolding. It's all secondary to that central mechanism of modeling and rewarding acts of vulnerability. So that's why I define it as an environment of rewarded vulnerability. Everything hinges on that mechanism. And it's a brave leader who can step up and show vulnerability. That's the thing I think is so difficult for leaders because because of those people we talked about who still pervade many of organizations, those people who are taught how to lead in an authoritarian industrial age, they're still prevalent in many organizations. And if you come in as a new leader, or perhaps a budding leader, and you show some weakness, uh, perceived weakness, <laughs> by showing vulnerability, or authenticity, oftentimes, it's it's misunderstood by those more authoritarian rulers or autocrats, who actually see it as a weakness. And therefore, people don't show any weakness. Because and, and I want to emphasize, it's not weakness. Let's talk about that, Aiden, because this is what's happening is you're describing the great collision that is happening today in organizations around the world between the imperial model of leadership and the inclusive model of leadership. Now, now let's, let's everyone think about this. The imperial model of leadership which is so prevalent. So, so many of us have been deeply, deeply socialized and acculturated to this model. The imperial model of leadership says, you're the expert, you're the oracle, you have all the answers. And, and so we, 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 we perpetuate that model and we have for generation after generation. The more dynamic the environment in which you're leading, the more antiquated and antique and obsolete that model becomes. Why? Because you're supposed to be the oracle, the repository of answers. That's ridiculous. You can't possibly do that. And so the environment, as it gets more dynamic, it makes that model obsolete from a competitive standpoint, let alone a moralistic standpoint. And so we're seeing this happen before our very eyes. For example, when we work with technology organizations, you can't possibly be a leader subscribing to the imperial model of leadership, or if you do, you're not going to last very long because you are in an environment that is moving so fast. You need everybody on board. You need everyone's input. You need this uh, ongoing, collaborative, cooperative system where everyone feels free and able to contribute because it's the only way you're going to adapt and survive in the environment. So, to summarize, that imperial model of leadership is dying. Uh, it's been slow. It's it's been very slow. I'll, let me take a line from a from an Ernest Hemingway novel. In in the sun also rises. There's a there's a there's a dialogue that goes on, and and the one character turns to the other and says, "So how did he go bankrupt?" And the other character says, "Slowly." and then suddenly, no, I think it was gradually, and then suddenly. So that this is what's happening to the imperial model of leadership. It's going bankrupt. It has been going bankrupt gradually, but now in the, tw in, in the 2020s, it's very suddenly going bankrupt because it's so obsolete. It's so mismatched to the environment that it's not sustainable. And that's exactly what we're living through right now. So I think that 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 illustrates the central role that a, that a leader has to be a cultural architect, 
to be responsible for the culture, the conditions, the container, the environment, the climate, whatever you want to call it. You are responsible for for those conditions. The leader's responsible for conditions. You set the tone. Well said. Well said, Tim. And I, I actually think the same with true diversity and inclusion, DEI across organizations that it's happening slowly and then quickly. And we're, yes. we're, we're again, we're at that interface of that change. And it's starting to happen quicker and quicker. And uh, long may it continue. So with, with Tim's permission, we now are going to share Tim's diagram of the four levels of psychological safety, what we're going to do is show it at a high level for those people who are interested as an overall mental model. And then in part two of the show, we're going to go into the deeper into four the four stages, with particular interest for those people who listen to this show on stage four, which is challenger safety for those people who want to challenge the status quo, which is mostly you people who listen to the show, and have experienced the wrath of the status quo in many st many instances. So I'm going to share this now on our screen. And we're Tim's going to talk to it as an overall mental model. And then we'll break and we'll come back for part two. So psychological safety in the first place is a function of two things. Number one, respect, which you see along the, the vertical axis. And number two, permission, which you see along the horizontal axis. Respect meaning the respect that we give each other as human beings and permission, meaning the permission to interact and participate and work together. It's a function of these two things. It's at the intersection. Now it's not binary, right? Psychological safety is not something that you have or don't have. It's a matter of degree. And so what we find is a very consistent pattern where psychological safety uh, progresses through four successive stages. So let's begin in the lower left-hand corner. Do you see where it says exclusion? If you bring people together and they don't know each other and they've never worked together, then by definition, at the beginning, they're in a state of exclusion. But then they start to interact. And very quickly, when human beings begin to interact, patterns emerge and we call those patterns of interaction norms. If those norms are inclusive, then we move to stage one, which is inclusion safety. We cross over at the inclusion threshold because we're no longer in a state of exclusion. We move to inclusion safety. Stage one means that we feel included, we feel accepted, we feel valued and appreciated. We have a sense of belonging and connection. How do we know that stage one is inclusion safety? We know this based on our quantitative and our qualitative research. In our global survey research, 92% of employees worldwide tell us this is the first basic human need they want to satisfy. They want to be included, accepted, and valued. They want that sense of belonging. And then we'll worry about other needs, but that's the first need. And based on our, our qualitative research as well with interviews, this is what people say. This is their first concern to, to, to be included and accepted and appreciated. Then we go to stage two, which is learner safety. Learner safety means that you feel safe in the learning process to engage in acts of vulnerability that are associated with learning. Now, let me go back to stage one for a minute. Inclusion safety means that you can be yourself, your whole self, your authentic self. You can bring your whole self to work. It's not expensive to be yourself. That's stage one. If it is, now, just think about this. How many of you have ever been in a social situation in which it was expensive to be yourself? We all have. What do you do when it's expensive to be yourself? Well, you start armoring, you start covering, you start code switching, you start changing your behavior and what you do. Why? Because you're protecting yourself. And that's a perfectly logical thing to do for an adaptive creature, right? 
an adaptable creature is going to do that. It's all about self-preservation and loss avoidance at this point. So you will engage in self-protecting behavior. Going back to stage two, stage two means that I can engage in acts of learning vulnerability and be rewarded for those acts of learning vulnerability. What are they? Well, the first one is asking a question or giving and receiving feedback or saying, I don't know, or experimenting or making a mistake. And you can come up with several others. Your acts of learning vulnerability will be rewarded, not punished. That's stage two. Stage three is contributor safety. Now you'll notice the natural sequence here. Learning precedes contribution. If you have an acquired knowledge, skills, experience, expertise, you can't contribute. So we learn first and then we contribute. Contributor safety means that you are given an opportunity to make a meaningful contribution, to make a difference. That translates into an appropriate level of autonomy. It translates into role clarity. It translates into guidance and support. And there's a very deep human need to find purpose and meaning in the work you do, to have your contribution matter. That's what stage three is all about. Does my contribution matter? Does it mean anything? Is there purpose behind it? Then finally, we go to stage four. This is the culminating stage. Challenger safety means that you feel safe to challenge the status quo without fear of negative consequences, such as retaliation, retribution, putting your career on the line, your personal reputation or standing. So think about how, how high the stakes are when you get to stage four. And by the way, as you can see on the diagram, you're crossing the innovation threshold to get to stage four. Why? Because this, this domain of stage four challenger safety, this is where we innovate. This is where we need the highest level of intellectual friction to help us solve the most difficult problems and create new solutions and make breakthroughs and Innovation overall requires that we do that. So there's a high level overview of the four stages. And the way you articulate it and the way you give the diagram there will be a map for so many organizations. I felt that when I read it because oftentimes the innovator takes for granted the first three stages. That's the problem. The challenger in an organization assumes they exist, but without them, they haven't the, the ground is very shaky it's it's paper thin and they'll fall through and and fail we're seeing this all over the place this is it's it's humorous and yet it's tragic at the same time so we see senior leaders ceos that will get up in front of their organizations they'll call an all hands meeting and they'll say we are going to have a speak up culture by golly, we're going to have a speak up culture. And it begins right now. And so I want your honest feedback. I want your candid input, as if you could decree that into existence with mere words. So when when senior leaders do this, one of two things is true, either they're culturally tone deaf, or they don't care. Because anyone that understands organizations recognizes that that's not going to happen. You're not going to have a speak up culture unless there is evidence in the culture that that kind of behavior will be rewarded. Otherwise, people are going to do their threat detection. They're going to look around. They're going to watch. They're going to listen. And they're going to say, uh, no deal. I'm not doing that. Why would I engage in that kind of act of vulnerability when there is no evidence that I'll be rewarded, but there's plentiful evidence that I'll be punished? Isn't that interesting? So you don't leapfrog to stage four challenger safety. You build up to it.
based on your the conditions in your culture. It's so sad. And, you know, I think from sports, you experienced this in sports. That's part of the culture you talk up and you kind of go, you know, coach, I don't think this move is working. Now, it doesn't always work that way. Uh, certainly with some coaches. But what, what I've experienced personally, and I've seen personally is where the leader will ask for, you know, suggestions, and maybe and I've done this myself, I was going, look, I don't think our customers are happy. I don't think we're satisfying them enough, etc. And then the leader turns on me and kind of goes, what do you mean by that? And I'm kind of going, well, I, I, they're not the repeat business isn't coming our way. And then the the other execs who had agreed with me, when I said, I'm going to bring this up into the meeting today, all went quiet, or worse, they sided with the leader and took their chance to have a, a cut. And it was really like I left soon afterwards because it, it became a, an extremely unsafe psychological environment. And the other thing I just wanted to say, because I'm sure you see it, as many people we coach in the work that we do, or many organizations you work with, oftentimes the people who solicit you to bring about a culture of innovation are on their last try it's the last straw for them they're like if this doesn't work they don't articulate this but it, it's clear to see i'm out of here i'm gonna leave and you oftentimes can sense that off people and i'd love to understand your experience of that as well i think that that's true uh they try to do it by compliance and you can't create an an incubator of innovation out of compliance that's just not going to happen people are they are engaging in very vulnerable behavior when they're collaborating and they're challenging the status quo. And so they need to be, um, they need to be rewarded for it. But, but often I think leaders don't acknowledge the reality of what is required to create an incubator of innovation. And by the way, let me just make a distinction between, so you, you, you mentioned earlier in the diversity, equity, and inclusion in our efforts there. Let's just take the distinction between diversity and inclusion, those two terms. They're related, but they're not the same thing. Diversity is a matter of makeup and composition. And so another pattern that we see we, is, is that we see this across organizations, many organizations, they've made great strides to diversify their employee populations. They've become more diverse compositionally in terms of who's in the organization. Now that's wonderful. And that does represent progress, but they are no more inclusive for it. And so they hit the wall so compositionally, they've made strides, but behaviorally, in terms of beliefs and behavior, they're no different. So they hit the wall. They, they, they haven't yet taken the journey to greater inclusion. How are you going to get there? The only way is that you have to model and reward behaviors that are associated with stage one inclusion safety. There's no, there's no shortcut to that. There's no work around. There's no back door, you, you, right? You, you can't, you can't, um, you can't do that in some kind of a shortcut way. So I just wanted to point that out because the journey is to become more diverse and more inclusive. And that means that we find the price and we pay the price. It's not going to happen just uh, as as we increase just understanding and awareness and appreciation of differences. Now that's important, but it's not sufficient. We have to jump in to behavior, and it really becomes a, a, a journey of self discovery where. If I engage in these behaviors and I generate confirming evidence that these behaviors are working and they're creating a more inclusive environment, wow. Now, this becomes immersive. It becomes experiential. 
now I'm making progress. That's what has to happen. Yeah, and as you say, you have to you have to model the behavior, and you have to reward it when it's, and recognize it when it happens, and point that out in those town hall meetings. As you say, everybody kind of looks around and goes, "What's going on here?" Before they make their move, and it's an unfortunate part of being a human being as well that you want to fit in. Let me mention one other thing Aiden, that I think is really important to understand for all of your viewers and listeners out there. If you are with a team or an organization that has very low psychological safety, it could be very dysfunctional, it could be toxic, but it's very low, you're going to see one or a combination of two patterns. Number one, silence. Now, that's pretty easy to understand, right? When your vulnerability gets punished over and over again, you retreat into silence. So silence is a very prevalent pattern for a lack of psychological safety. The other pattern is niceness. Now think about this. What we often do, niceness sometimes is the veneer of civility. It's the appearance of collegiality, but it's not real. So what we often do in toxic environments is we will paint a very thin layer of nice over a thick layer of fear. And so you'll see this in cultures where they become very collegial. They're very nice to each other. But when they're in meetings, they can't tackle the tough issues. The tolerance for candor is very low. So if you, if you, if you go uh, watch or listen or participate with a group in a meeting, it takes no more than about 15 minutes to understand what's going on. Because when a team tries to conceal the fact that it does not have psychological safety, it's actually revealing itself. You can't hide that fact. You'll try to hide it in silence or you'll try to hide it in niceness. Both patterns are a dead giveaway. There's a quote that you may have heard. It was uh, it's attributed to Voltaire, and I I don't think it's accurate that it's Voltaire. But anyway, it's the point of the quote I wanted to share because on that exact point, it said, "To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize." And I thought about that where you see this many times where a leader, a so-called leader in an organization, somebody in a position of power thinks that everybody likes them. <laughs> and then somebody leaves the organization or goes somewhere else or that leader maybe goes or is let go and realizes nobody ever wants to see them again. And in there, there is a massive lesson because it was only because they were in a position of power. And I think that really people can learn a lot from it. I saw a lot in sports, for example, Tim, as I'm sure you did too. People in the team, everybody liked them when they were in the team, but then their after career is where you see, do people really like them? Do they really want to ever meet them again? Right. You don't, you see it a lot. Yeah. So last thing I wanted to share before we break, because this is another pattern you see. And again, I've been there where you are that gainsayer. You're the person who thinks they have the safety to speak up and be the challenger. And you do it over and over and over. And then either you realize nobody's doing anything with this information, or perhaps it's me, perhaps I'm articulating it poorly. Or you realize that being the challenger is just not worth it anymore. And you go quiet. And then the leader, <laughs> or the person in power, turns around to somebody else and kind of goes, Oh, Aiden's not engaging anymore, or he's gone very quiet. And then Mike turn around to you and go, Yeah, you don't seem like yourself anymore. And you're like, kind of going, in your head, you're kind of going, that's because there's no point in being myself <laughs> anymore. And they leave as well. And this is something that you point out in the book as well. If this happens on an ongoing basis, then then you you disengage. So you will either leave the organization or you will disengage and retire on the job. That's what people do. Because even if your input is not adopted and embraced and implemented, you at least need the acknowledgement that it's appreciated 
and that you need to keep doing that because it's valuable. This is very important. And there's, there's uh, research that comes out of the MIT Human Dynamics Lab that tells us how important this is. If you give input and feedback, but it's not adopted, your boss needs to make sure and acknowledge your contribution anyway. Thank you for your input. Thank you for participating. Thank you for contributing. We're going to go a different way, and here's why. So here's what you owe to people, Aiden. When people participate and engage and challenge, they need two things. Number one, they need an acknowledgement. Number two, if you don't adopt their input, they need an explanation of why. They're, they are owed those two things. If you provide those two things, you're affirming the individual and you're also explaining from um, a, a data and logic standpoint point why we are or are not adopting your feedback. The individual intellectually needs that and emotionally needs the acknowledgement. So that's what we need to do. And as you say in the book, it's part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You need to know that you count. You need to know that you exist. And I was telling my kids, uh, I was telling my son recently, I decided to tell him after the tragedy in the US and Texas and the school shooting, I, I said to myself, I, I wonder if my kids understand that sometimes that comes from somebody who feels hopeless and excluded and the seeds of that action are planted in childhood and school. And I, I said to my kids, make sure that if, if you see somebody who's left out, make sure that you recognize them, etc. And then my my younger son told me that and this was I was so so I've never been more proud of him. He's done great things, but I've never been more proud of him. He told me that the other day he saw this kid in his school who was often left out on his own eating his lunch and he asked him to join him and his friends and I was like I was never more proud as a dad than that moment and I don't think I, I was just like I was he and he was surprised how proud I was of him but I I think that reaction from me to him is it will hopefully have an impact for the rest of his life and uh, as as you know and and your book will have for many people I hope as well I, I think it's a nice way to end uh, part one Tim and uh Tim and I are going to take a coffee break and come back and record part two. And uh, Tim, I'm going to take the chance to try and fix my camera a little bit and maybe my lighting a little bit better for part two because yours is is awesome. So um, we'll finish up part two. Thank you for everybody for joining us. I hope you're finding it as interesting as I certainly am. In part two, what we're going to do is deep dive into the four stages of psychological safety that Tim uh, presents in the book. And I look forward to joining you then. Tim, for now, author of The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Tim Clark, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. Good to be here. I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. I'll see you soon for some more multi-part episodes and fantastic content from these great authors.